If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11. Last Sunday, we looked at the confession of the people of Israel that took place after the reading of the law and after the celebration of the Feast of Booths. And as we saw in chapter 9, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. The thing that stood out to me that I mentioned last week several times in the sermon is that confession must go along with worship because, in fact, both our confession, when we confess who God is, his glory, and his character, then we can also confess our ingratitude, but the two must go together. We also saw that the confession and worship came after the reading of the law of the Lord their God. So, when it comes to the prayer of confession that we saw last week in chapter 9, we see that in verses 5 to 13, or to 15, speaks of God the Creator and Savior. Verses 16 to 25, the generous and patient God. In verses 26 to 31, the God who warns and disciplines. And then finally, in the last section, verses 32 to 37, the faithful God and his faithless people. That is our faithlessness I think must be seen in the context of God's faithfulness. And having confessed this, they renew the covenant. Verse 38, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. This is quite different from what had happened in the past. Here it is a document that's written out and is going to be signed by the leadership of the people, saying we are going to keep the terms of this covenant. The rest of the people bind, bound themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God, to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees. And after this general oath of allegiance, if you wish, there then are very specific things which I think are specific to their situation, particular to their situation. So they will not intermarry with pagans, they will not break the Sabbath, they will give the temple tax, and they will provide for the temple system. Just one last thing, and I mentioned this last Sunday, it was a thought that sort of hounded me all through the week, almost making it impossible for me to, to write out the sermon, because this one thought kept coming back to me, and that is, yes, confession must be done in the context of worship. We confess who God is and what he has done. But if we're not careful in our confession, it becomes all about us. I have sinned, I have done this, I, I, I. And in what is supposed to be an act of worship ends up becoming something that is primarily about me. Even in telling God what terrible people we are, and he knows far better than we do, it's still about us. We become self-centered. And that's why I think it is so important for us to understand that confession of sin must be done in the context of worshiping God and acknowledging who he is. And when the Levites and the people of Israel confess their sins, it begins with worship and with praise. And it continues throughout the prayer of confession. I think there's much to teach us in this. Today we come to chapter 11, and then we will move on to chapter 12. It opens with an issue that was mentioned in chapter 7. Let me just read that to you, the first five verses of Nehemiah 7. 
After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their post and some near their own houses. Verse 4, now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical records of those who had been the first to return. So there's a problem. They've rebuilt the walls. That's great. They've replaced the gates. That's wonderful. So no one can get in. But there aren't that many people who live within the city itself. And so here now at the beginning of chapter 11, this problem is addressed. And so if you look at our text, verses 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own homes. The people commended all the men who had volunteered to live in Jerusalem. In order to repopulate the city of Jerusalem through a system that is not specified to us, they cast lots so that one out of every ten, ten percent, would in fact live in the city of Jerusalem. Now the matter of casting lots is something that's found throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament at least once. Yesterday was the end of the Day of Atonement. I say the end because it begins Friday night at sunset and ends Saturday night at sunset. Well, the instructions with regard to the Day of Atonement found in Leviticus 6.16 is that certain sacrifices are to be made and there are two goats that are to be chosen. Let me read it to you. Then he, that is the high priest, is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the temple or the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. That is literally the goat of removal. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. Uh, that is, one of, it, one of the goats was to be killed, was to be sacrificed and burned on the altar. And then the other one, well, let me read to you. He, that is Aaron, is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all the sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. You have two goats. One is to be sacrificed for the sins of Israel. The other is to carry symbolically the sins of Israel out into the desert. By the way, the Lord Jesus is seen in both, in that he was sacrificed, but he also carried the sins of his people. So you have two goats. So which is which? Which one will, in fact, be killed and which one will be let loose in the desert? Well, they were to cast lots. And again, we don't know the specifics of this, but somehow, uh, in a way that God would decide which one would go into the desert, which one would be sacrificed, lots were to be cast. 
Now, I think for modern people, this seems like a matter of chance. It's like rolling the dice, if you wish. Um, but in reality, the practice reflected a dependence upon God by asking God, by looking to God for wisdom. Then when they divided up the land, even before they were still in the wilderness, before they got to the promised land, uh, by lots they were to, to divide up the land. Moses is told by the Lord, each inheritance is to be distributed by lot among the larger and smaller groups. And then when they actually entered into the land, their inheritance was assigned to them by lot to the nine and a half tribes as the Lord had commanded to Moses. By the way, you're like nine and a half. I thought there were 12 tribes. Well, two and a half tribes decided to stay on the other side of the Jordan River. So you have two and a half there and you have nine and a half here. And by lot, it was divided up among them. Then you may remember the story of Achan. After Israel had gone across the Jordan River, they went to Jericho and they were given instructions. They were to march around the city once a day, once each day for six days. And on the seventh day, they were to go around seven times. And at the end of the seventh, uh, while the priests are blowing the horns, they are to shout and the walls will come down. God gave very specific instructions. Don't touch anything. It all belongs to God. Well, somebody didn't follow the instructions. And so the next time they went to uh, attack a city, they thought, we can do this. We took care of Jericho. And they're defeated. They're routed. And they go to God and God said, somebody sinned. How are they going to find out who did it? In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe, the Lord says. The tribe that the Lord takes shall come forth clan by clan. The clan that the Lord takes shall come forth family by family. And the family that the Lord takes shall come forward man by man. And Achan is discovered in this, in this method. In each case, there's an awareness that God knows all and that he is in control of all. So the casting of lots is a means by which he conveys his will to his people. The one time it's mentioned in the New Testament is when, in Acts chapter 1, they decided to replace Judas. Judas had betrayed Jesus. Um, he committed suicide, so now you have 11 disciples and they need a 12th disciple. Um, 120 of the Lord's people are in what we know as the upper room. Peter addresses them. By the way, you might say, what's the big deal? So you have 11 instead of 12. Well, 12 is the number of Israel, and the Lord Jesus is doing what Israel did not do, and it's represented in his 12 disciples. So Peter speaks, Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they propose two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the last mention of casting lots in Scripture. And I think we now get a sense of the thinking behind it. God knows everything. They look to God to reveal what it is, in fact, they should do. What is required is a prayerful attitude. And in fact, they do pray. One of humility, one of submission to whatever it is that God wills. I must confess that this sounds foreign to me. 
it smacks of random chance and if you do higher math some aspect of probability um, it might even sound like gambling like buying a lottery ticket or going to Vegas what I would say is the difference between well first of all what gambling and casting lots have in common is in fact a sense of I don't know what the outcome is going to be there is a real sense of ignorance an absence of knowledge I don't know now when you cast lots you say God does know and God will reveal it to us on the other hand if you gamble you're like well we don't know until you roll the dice or pull the handle whatever it is you do and then we will know the outcome it's interesting in looking this up or trying to at least uh, about casting lots everyone seems to want to go to magic or divination which is forbidden by scripture and yet we have here very specific examples of which, in which people are doing this and the difference is that God is the one who is in control that is the vision in casting lots whereas in gambling it's just mere chance it's just random chance so one out of every ten will be chosen by lot to live in the city and there's an, it's, it's unstated but it's, there's an awareness God is the one who chooses not Nehemiah not the Levites, not the political leaders. It is God who will choose by the casting of lots. So in verse number two, the people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. I think this includes the people who are chosen by lot. Because you could say, okay, that's, I was chosen by lot, but I, I don't want to do that. You know, my family lives 40 miles away. Why should I live here and my family live there? But because they saw it as coming from God, 10% of the population moves into the city of Jerusalem so that it is no longer empty. This is important because up to verse number 24, we're given a list of the names of the people who in fact are chosen and who choose to live in the city of Jerusalem to obey God's will. Now we come to chapter 12. And uh, we're not told, but I would assume that verse number 27 of chapter 12 picks up where 11.2 dropped off. You have a narrative and then suddenly you have all these names of people who are going to live in Jerusalem and you have a list of the Levites and now you have the dedication of the wall. If you would look at verses 27 through 29. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers also brought together, were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal and from the area around Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting that some people might have questions about casting lots. I have questions about the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. Because in the Old Testament, to dedicate something is to sanctify it, to say this belongs to God. This is separated to God. Uh, and it might be a thing or it might be a person, a child. You consecrate, you say this, in fact, belongs to God. Um, and we see it mentioned throughout the law. Uh, in the altar in Numbers chapter 7, when Moses finished setting up that tabernacle, he anointed it and consecrated it and all its furnishings. 
He also anointed and consecrated the altar and all its utensils. And then later in the same chapter, when the altar was anointed, the leaders brought forth their offerings for its dedication and presented them before the Lord. For the Lord had said to Moses, each, one, each day one leader is to bring his offering for the dedication of the altar. And from Exodus through Deuteronomy, we see this time and time again, this thing of setting something apart. This belongs to God. This is special. We dedicate this to God. Um, in Second Samuel 8, uh, David is told he cannot build the temple, but he has been collecting over the years materials for the temple. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord, as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued. Earlier in our study, we saw that they dedicated the temple when it was completed. Um, I don't have any problem with that. What it seems to me is that all these things that were dedicated were, for lack of a better word, religious things. These are like spiritual things, part of the worship system. Um, dedicating a wall doesn't seem to fit into that. You know, a temple, yes. Uh, the altar, yes. Uh, the gold for the tabernacle, for the temple, yeah, I get that. But the wall itself, yeah. Until we go back and look a bit closer. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, it's a section on going to war and what is to be done with the men who are going to fight this war. The officer shall say to the army, has anyone built a new house and not dedicated it? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else may dedicate it. What's being said here? I'm reminded of Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. We, we hear something very similar, by the way, from Moses in Deuteronomy 10. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. To dedicate something to God is based on the recognition that that thing or that person already belongs to God. Okay, it's not as though, okay, this is mine, but I'm going to dedicate this, this part to God and, and this part will be God's. It already belongs to him. And to dedicate it, I think, recognizes, first of all, that it belongs to him, and second of all, that he has loaned it to us, he has put it into our care, we are stewards of it, we're supposed to take care of it. In a very real sense, we don't own anything. We do not own anything, it all belongs to God. And graciously, he has committed it to our care. When we dedicate something, we recognize that reality, and we look to him in humility and submission, and we dedicate, we say, okay, you have put this into my care, give me wisdom in how I'm to take care of it, direction, um, may I do the right thing, may you protect and watch over whatever it is you've committed to. Because this thing is not mine, it is yours, and you have committed it to my care. So while I may say, oh yeah, dedicate the temple by all means, dedicate the altar, that makes sense. We need to see that to dedicate the wall of the city of Jerusalem is entirely appropriate. Because otherwise we have, well these are the, the God things and these are the daemon things. These are my things and I, I've decided to sort of give these to God. And in dedicating the wall they are saying it all belongs to God. Before they dedicate the wall, though, there's something else that needs to happen. If you look at verse number 30, 
When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Again, we might understand the need for purification for the Levites and the priests. They need to clean up because they are the ones who are going to lead the people of God in worship. Um, And we might see the need for the people to be purified. In Exodus 19, when they came to Mount Sinai, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to them, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. By the way, if you go to Exodus 19, a few verses earlier, it says, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So again, the idea that everything belongs to God. So purification. Um, The Levites, I think this involves washing their clothes and washing their bodies, as well as abstaining from sexual relations. This is true of the people as well. I get that. But the gates and the wall, how do you purify the gates and the wall? We actually don't know. Perhaps it was the clearing away of debris, uh, just simply cleaning it up. I think the point that we should get from this is that nothing is left unpurified. In other words, we shouldn't say, okay, we're people, we need to be purified, but everything else, yeah, don't worry about that. Again, it's a dividing the world into two parts of that which is religious and that which is sort of secular. And on this day, as they are going to dedicate the wall, they also purify the wall. So, on the day of dedication, what do they do? Let me give you a brief overview and then we'll read the passage. Two choirs are created. Two different choirs are created. They are assigned to give thanks. They start at the same location, but one choir goes to the right, marching along the top of the walls and singing. The other one, that's led by Ezra, by the way. The other one goes to the left. Nehemiah is in that group. The choir goes ahead and he's behind them. And then they meet at the temple And there you have sacrifices, you have songs of thanksgiving, which they've been singing as they go around the wall of the city. And they come to a place and they together praise God for what he's done. So if you would look at verse 31. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on the top of the wall to the right, toward the dung gate. Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some priests with trumpets, and also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zachor, the son of Asaph, and his associates, Shemaiah, Azarel, Melali, Gilali, Ma'ai, Nethanel, Judah, Hanani, with musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra the scribe led the procession. At the fountain gate they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed by the house of David to the water gate on the east. That is the first big choir. These are big choirs and they are singing. The second, beginning in verse 38, 
And I have in my notes led by Nehemiah, but he actually follows them. Look at verse 38. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, over the gate of Ephraim, the Jeshana gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of hundred of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate, the gate of the guard, they stopped. And now they meet at the temple and they sing together. Verse 40, the two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I together with half the officials, as well as the priests, Eliakim, Maasiah, Minianim, Micaiah, Elioni, Zechariah, and Hananiah with their trumpets. And also Maasiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Ozi, Jehohanan, Melchijah, Elam, and Ezer. The choir sang under the direction of Jezrahiah. And it is a great day of joy. On that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. It's really, it must have been an amazing sight, and more than sight, the hearing of it. As these two great choirs march around, they meet at the northern part where the temple is and their sacrifices are given and the two choirs sing together and they give thanks to God. See, as with confession, thanksgiving is worship and with it come sacrifices and that's what they do. One last part and that is organizing continuing worship. In the last part of chapter 12, Nehemiah organizes the economics, if you wish, of continuing worship. And he does so along the lines set down by David almost 600 years before. Quite remarkable, six centuries before. Look, if you would, at verse 44. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits, and tithes from the fields around the towns they were to bring into the storehouses, the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification as all did also the singers and gatekeepers according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph there had been directors for the singers and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah all Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. Coming here to the end of chapter 12, I'm struck by the practicality of this passage, because one might be moved and almost carried away emotionally as you hear the singing of thanksgiving as the two great choirs circle the city. Yeah, and then you go home and you forget about it. Well, the Levites need to be taken care of, as do the singers and the directors of music, and those who take care of the gates. So the Levites, the priests, the singers, the gatekeepers need to be taken care of and they need to be provided for. This is something that David had set up long before and Nehemiah says we need to continue doing this. And almost as an aside, I don't know if you caught it, but the Levites tithe their tithe. That is, the tithe is given to the Levites and then the Levites, it's like you can't say, well, I'm in the Lord's work, I don't have to tithe. No, they got the tithe, and then 10% of their tithe was to go to the priesthood, to the descendants of Aaron. This is, by the way, precisely in keeping with what God had told Moses. Uh, you, 
Well, speak to the Levites and say to them, When you receive from the Israelites the tithe I give you as your inheritance, you must present a tenth of the tithe as the Lord's offering. There's no one who can say, Well, I don't need to do anything. I don't need... I am free from this because I'm actually in the Lord's work. Again, it just reinforces this, this notion that there isn't this, to be this division of this is the Lord's work and this is everybody else's and these are special and these people are not. Yes, you dedicate the, ta- the temple, you also dedicate the wall. The, de- the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem may remind one of what we read in Psalm 48. Walk about Zion. Go around her, count her towers, consider well her ramparts, view her citadels, that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. And on that day they gave thanks and they dedicated the wall. What might just seem like a wall to some people is seen as quite special to Nehemiah and to the people of Israel. This is God's wall. God gave this to them. They dedicate it to him. They don't say, well, this is our wall. You know, everybody has their wall. This is our wall. They're like, no, this is something that God has given to us. They have submitted to God in the casting of lots. And by the way, I mean, just put yourself in a place. Let's say you live 20, 30, 40 miles away from Jerusalem and then your number gets called. It's like you're going to have to leave home and move to Jerusalem. Why would you do that? It seems unfair. Why are you chosen? Well, there is a sense that, in fact, God is in control and my name came up. The lot fell on me because this is what God wanted. And so I submit to him and I move to Jerusalem to live with the others who were chosen. They purified themselves. They didn't say, we are the children of Abraham. We are the, you know, we are the people of Israel. No, no, they'd already confessed their sins. I think they know who they are. They listen to God's word. They purify themselves. They purify the wall because it all belongs to God. And then they dedicate it and they give it to God. I think we live in a time, well, I know we live in a time in which chance seems to rule. That's how most people see life, that it's just random chance. And a passage like this might be seen as reinforcing that rather than it being a recognition of the need to submit to God. Rather than saying, oh, God knows what's going to happen. I remember when I was in Bible college, uh, my last year of Bible college, um, someone that I had known when I was in fifth grade we went to the same church together. We were on furlough in, in Springfield. And, and then I went back to the Philippines and I hadn't seen her since. Um, she was killed in a car accident. That um, She was getting into a car and someone came by and hit her and killed her. And so my mom and I went to the funeral and I'll never forget what the pastor said. He says that this, this death comes to us as a great surprise, but not to God. God is not surprised by this. I think in our lives there have been many surprises. Things that have happened that we could not have predicted. But they're not surprises to God. 
And the casting of lots is a recognition that God knows all things. But there's also a sense in which I submit to God. And I know that God knows what is best. And then just simply on the matter of dedication, um, everything we have comes from God. It's all God's. And dedication is simply a, a recognizing God gave this to me. I have to take care of this and look to God for wisdom. Let's pray together. Our Father, in some sense, we do like being surprised. We do imagine that there is such a thing as random chance. It's just hard for us to wrap our minds around the fact that you know all things, control all things, particularly when bad things happen. I thank you for the example these people who made the sacrifice, who moved to Jerusalem because their number had come up. And they saw it as not Nehemiah's doing or the priest's doing, but your doing. And then for their dedicating of this inanimate object, this wall, it's like everybody has a wall, I mean, but there's a recognition that this has come from you. They need your protection, they need your wisdom as they are stewards, as they live in this city that you have provided. We are so prone to divide our lives into two camps, the spiritual things and the not spiritual things. And we think that in one, we've pretty much got it covered. And the other, we sort of do, but we need your help from time to time. Again, I thank you for what we see here in the book of Nehemiah, that all of life is yours. Everything around us is yours. The earth is the Lord's. And it is in humility and submission that we recognize that and we commit ourselves. And those things you have committed to us, we commit them to your care. Thank you for bringing us together today. We pray for those that are traveling, for the Nobles as they'll come back, and for Jeff as he makes that long drive to Minnesota. And again, we remember the G's, that you would provide a place for them to live. As we've just said, you know all things, and all things are possible with you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.